to the call and remain steadfast and unmovable in the things of God, that they would be rewarded. So their labor would not be in vain. So tonight he kind of finished up uh, this first letter uh, by addressing some of the questions, a question that must have been asked earlier because he started off by talking about regarding some things, regarding. And, uh, and that lets us know that, okay, if it's regarding something, that means that uh, earlier someone have asked this question and now he's gonna answer this before he closed out this letter. So that's what this first part deals with. And it specifically deals with the uh, collection that was taken up for uh, the churches that were in Jerusalem uh, who were going through some severe poverty cause of famine or for some reason the Bible don't clearly say what was causing it but we do know that the churches were in need and so here we see him establishing some things that I think that we can learn from as far as uh, how we see things today and so the focus is it, it, I wanted to be on you know um, this first part on benevolent giving you know benevolent giving and, and, and so when you think about that term benevolent giving, just think about what it means to you in your heart when you think about God has blessed you to be able to give benevolently and, and to, to meet the needs of someone else because God has blessed you to be able to do that. So this is what he says uh, in uh, verse one, he says, now regarding your question. Again, if I'm regarding a question, that means that you ask me something now I want to kind of give you the answer or the explanation of how we're gonna deal with this. So he says, now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem. Then he said, you should follow the same procedures I gave the churches in Galatia. In other words, there were other churches in the region, uh, in that area of Galatia, uh, probably the region that we come to think of now as modern day Turkey uh, involves several different countries, but there was churches that had been established throughout all those regions. And as a result of that, Paul had relationship with those churches. So he gave them instructions on how they could be a part of helping and supporting the churches, uh, the church that was at Jerusalem. Because again, the church in Jerusalem was going through some tough times. They were in poverty. And now the Corinthian church uh, at this time we established early on that the Corinthians church was a pretty well-off church. So this wasn't a poor church. This was a church where it was in a, in a city where the people had means and they had the, the ability to help. So he says, now, here's what I want you to do. Follow the same procedures I gave to the churches in Galatia. He said, on the first day of the week, and for us in the church, the first day of the week is when? Sunday, yeah, yeah. So we look at that's the first day of the week. He says on the first day of the week, and because we see that as the first day of the week in most of the Christian world, we see that as a, the day of worship too, the first day of the week. However, I do know that there are some that believe in Jesus that worship on Saturday, and that's okay. But, but he's saying here, this don't make either one of us right or wrong. It's just that, hey, some people do Saturday, some people do Sunday. You can worship on Wednesday. There ain't no big deal. You know, any time we can come together can be a time of worship. But here we found out that Paul has said on the first day of the week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. And then he says, 
take something, put it aside, have it in your heart, what you're going to do. And then he said, don't wait till I get there and then try to collect it all at once. So he was saying, hey, whenever I come, he wanted this offering to be in place. I don't want you to try to scrap it together when I get there. You know I'm coming, don't know when, but every time y'all meet, put something aside. If the Lord didn't bless you, put something aside. And I believe that this is where, I remember when I was coming up in the Baptist church, we had a specific offering just called benevolent offering. You know, because we took up a lot of offerings, but, but, but one of them was for benevolence. You know, you had your general offering, then your tithing offering, then you have your benevolent offering. And, and, and I used to always think the benevolent offering was always the lightest offering. And I think because by the time we got to the benevolent offering, the people felt like they done gave so much, they, had, they, they felt like they had enough for the poor. So, 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 it, so it, in our way of doing things here at Striving, you know, we don't take up one offering. But a lot of times when it comes to the benevolent work of the church that involves other than church members, we handle that through SWP Synergy. And so therefore, every, every week, we give Synergy a donation based on 10% of what y'all give, or whatever our members give right off the top, 10% of that go to Synergy. And Synergy then acts as our agent in the community, so when people come here with certain needs for food and things of that nature, we do that. And, we, and, and by doing it that way, we have been doing that faithfully for over 20 some odd years, and, and regardless of what people give to our tithes and offering. Because based on whatever they give, we're just gonna take the 10% and give. And what that does, and that keeps us from having to take up additional offerings. Now, every now and then, we will have designated offerings, like we've taken up offerings for, for uh, storm victims, for when the tornadoes hit in Selma, or different places where there's been storms and around the world. We have taken up different offerings for that beside our tithing offering. But the reason we can do that is because I, I, I believe our members have been taught to give. And if God has blessed you, you can't go wrong helping the poor man. <laughs> I, I just don't believe, if God has blessed you, when you read the Bible, you'll see that God got a special place in his heart for widows, orphans, and poor folk. I mean, and that tracks throughout the Bible. And so what he's saying here is that, hey, on the first day of the week, you got to take from what you have earned and, and set it aside, designate it. Because if you don't set it aside and designate it, then you'll find something else to do with it. <laughs> you know, you, you'll find something to do. He said, no, you got to set it aside and designate it. And he said, now, don't wait till I get there to try to collect it all at once. In other words, start doing it every week. And that's why I think it's important. When we get in the habit of giving, I know people ask, well, how often should I give? I believe, you know, we ought to, you ought to give. Every time you come into the house to worship, if God has blessed you, you ought to give something. You know, I'm not talking about when we come to Bible study. I'm talking about on a worship service. You know, and because worship, giving is a part of worship. And so therefore, when we understand that and we see that all things come from God and we are blessed to be able to give, then we got to learn how to do it freely. I mean, because if you can do it freely, then you're saying you trust God that whatever you got, you know that he can give you more. You, you, you don't see God as, a, as, a, as a, a lake. You see him as a flowing stream. You know, because if you see him as a lake, then you're going to hold on to what you got because you think that can't nothing else come in the lake. 
But if you see another flowing stream, then if you give, there's always something moving through. And I believe God will be faithful when it comes to us giving. So he was making this point. Look out for those who are poor. And he was telling them that because these were churches that he had established. So being that apostle over them, he could ask them to give to support the other churches. This was churches now coming together in that spirit of unity to work to help out other churches, you know. And so look at this. He said now, verse 3 and 4 says, When I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, I don't necessarily want to carry it myself, but if I have to, I will. But if you choose the people that you trust, we're going to make sure they're trustworthy, then what I'm going to do is write a letter of recommendation, meaning that so when they get to Jerusalem, they will be received and they'll know that this is coming from someone with authority. Okay? And a lot of times they wrote, Paul wrote letters of commendation even when he was sending ministers to go to different places. When he sent Timothy, we're going to see later, he said, I'm going to send a letter of commendation or recommendation so that when he gets there, y'all don't treat him bad. You got to treat him like, and, and, and sometimes I believe that I look back at all my experience in the church, and again, most of them in the Baptist church, I remember when I was little and coming up, and even when we got older, when new people came to the church, they used to come up and say, how do you come? You know, do you come as a new believer? Do you come by record, letter of recommendation? What do you got to show? As if you know when you come and join this church, you need to either be coming as a new believer, and if you're already saved, then you need a letter of recommendation from the church you're coming from. And I used to always wonder, why in the world are they going to make somebody? And now, we don't do that striving. I mean, I'm not saying right or wrong, but I used to wonder, what would I write? I, I guess it's to say, Fred was a good member. He, he worked on the committees. He did this, this, and this. And so, therefore, because of that, now you can receive him in the church with honor. But we don't, I mean, very seldom. I think in the 20-some-odd years, I've only had to do that about three times where people have gone to a church after they left here and say, hey, the pastor or the church here would like a letter of recommendation. Probably because they were trying to get in leadership. Brother Mike? Yeah, when I came to the United States, the church back home gave me a letter to give to the church and they recommend me so, so they can know that I was in standing, good standing with the church. So they give you that letter so the church knew that this is from a pastor of the church. Amen. Amen. Just say that, hey, you're a good, you're a good standing member, you know, and based upon the fact that Pastor Bolden or whatever church you're coming from believe you're a good standing member, that new pastor got to feel like, hey, this person's going to be a, a good person to have on the team. But I don't know if that's still widely practiced. I know we don't do it here striving, but if someone asks for one, yeah, I'll, I'll do it, but it's been rare in 20 some odd years. Go ahead. You think in? Oh, no, that's a reader before they turn them in to make sure that, you know, they're in good, talking about being in good standing. You know, I mean, it's just in case. Well, well, you know, I think the one or two times that I've done letters, now, in this case, they may have. I don't think they would. They would have been trustworthy men. I, did, I never gave the letter to the person. Whenever it was a situation like that, I mailed it straight to the, to the pastor of the church. So he should have been the only person to see that and know it. But like I said, 20-some-odd years, I, I can count on one hand the number of times I've had to do that. 
And, and, and again, that practice may not even be practiced today. I don't know if churches are doing it or is it just in certain denominations that they still practice that. But I know for the most part, wherever our members are going, those churches are not requiring those letters. But again, it would be nice that if, if our work speaks for us and so when we leave one place, someone would write a nice favorable letter saying, hey, this person was a faithful member of the church. You know, they served the Lord and they, with gladness and they did all the things that God called them to do and letting that minister or that ministry know, hey, you're getting someone that's going to be willing to put their hands to the plow, you know, and, and, and help you accomplish whatever the assignment God has given you. Anybody else have ever experienced that? I mean, just before I read on. Okay, so verse 4 says, if it seems appropriate for me to come along, then they can travel with me. So he's saying, hey, if it's, it's necessary, if I have to come, the letter's not good enough, I can come along with them, but that's not the original plan. So then now from starting in verse 5, Paul started to give some final instructions. And, and, and look what he said. He says, I am coming to visit you after I have been to Macedonia, for I am planning to travel through Macedonia. Verse 6 says, perhaps I will stay a while with you, possibly all winter, and then, go, then you can send me on my way to the next destination. This time, I don't want to make just a short visit and then go right on. I want to come and stay for a while if the Lord, if the Lord will let me. Now, all I want you to see out of that is that, you know, a lot of times in life, we often make plans but we don't never include the Lord in the, pl in the plan. We just haul off and start planning and say we're going to do certain things and never says, okay, God, is this what you want me to do? You know, I know in James they talk about those who say, this day, this season, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy and I'm going to sell and I'm going to do all these things. He said, well, wait a minute. You know, your life ain't but a vapor. What if I, your life is required why are you making all these plans? And so he was saying, and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with planning, but as you plan, include God in your plans. You know, ask him, and, and Paul was saying, no matter what goes on, I can say I'm going to do all these things, but it all comes down on if God let me do it. And, and we know from testimony that he wanted to go over in one place and then he got woke up in, by the Spirit and said, hey, you need to go over to Macedonia. And he wasn't planning on going there, but once God gave, changed direction, he went along with what God said. And that's how it has to be with us sometimes in life. We can make our own plans, but man, if God is speaking to your heart and God is showing you some things you know it's him, then you're going to have to trust his plans over your plans. And so he don't hate us for planning because we ought to plan but just include God in your plan. Sometimes we just need to sit down and deliberate with God and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Speak to me by your spirit, God. Show me before I make this decision because I want to believe I make this decision in accord with your will is going to come out in accord with your plan for my life. And so even though Paul was this high-powered, you know, apostle and God had called him, he still realized that God's will has a say-so in his life. And that's what we have to realize, understand. God's will. So now look at this. He says, in the meantime, verse 8, I will be staying here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. 
Okay, now when y'all hear the word Pentecost, how does that festival come about? What, 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 what does Pentecost mean? Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost. Anybody? Anybody? Get a mic, get a mic. Make sure that mic is on, Mike. I'm not sure if it's on. Yes, yes. I was okay. saying, yes. I was saying uh, that's uh, the resurrection, 50 days after his resurrection. Yeah. So Pentecost, that was the same day the Holy Spirit came, um, came to the, on the apostles. Amen. So, and, and that's right. So, so Pentecost, just where we were saying 50, so it was 50 days after the resurrection they had on the day of Pentecost. That became a celebration. And so he's saying that, hey, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. So it must have been something that now was like a routine or something that they did regularly. Now, you know, a lot of times, even in the Christian world, some churches, you know, they, they do celebrate Pentecost Sunday. You know, 50 days after the Easter, then there's a time they call it Pentecost Sunday. You know, and, and there's nothing right or wrong about that. You know, people can do that and, and, and celebrate that and go back and talk through the, the events of Acts chapter 2, okay? And, and so he's saying now, if it's, it's okay, then what I want to do is I want to stay a while there with you and maybe even until the festival of Pentecost. Then he says, there is a wide window, there's a wide open door for a great work here. Although many oppose me. He said, now, I want to come, but while I'm here in Ephesus, there's a window of opportunity for me to serve. And, and, and what we need to do is stop right there and, and look at our lives. And, and, and ask the question, how often do we take or miss windows of opportunity when God brings people in our lives or bring opportunities in our lives for us to serve him and bring glory to him by serving someone else. See, when we do things, uh, we're not doing it as if we're doing it to God, we're doing it for God, but normally God is using us to bless somebody else or to be there for somebody else and serve somebody else. And so as a result of that, then when God opened up a window or a door of opportunity, then we gotta learn how to start taking advantage of those opportunities. Because those are ministry moments that God brings people in our lives, opportunities where we can pray for somebody, where we can minister to somebody, where we can just give a word of encouragement to somebody. And so often in life, because we're not sensitive to those opportunities, we walk right past windows and doors of opportunity. And I think a lot of times we don't wake up every day believing that God can bring someone in our lives or bring a situation our way where we can speak encouragement to someone. And, 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 but I think if we wake up and we focus on that, say, God, I believe today if something come up, I'm going to be sensitive to an opportunity where I can share the gospel. You know? And, 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 and that's how the body of Christ grows when believers become sensitive to the needs of people around them. 
And, and, and the only way we can effectively do that is we got to do that even in the face of opposition. Paul said, hey, look, man, I'm going to stay here because there's a great wonder here. And guess what? There's a great work. But in the midst of this great work, man, people are opposing me. Everybody's not on my side. Everybody's not cheering me on. And so most of the time, because we fear that people are going to oppose us, a lot of times we run away from great work because we worry about what somebody else is going to say, what somebody else is going to think, instead of saying, hey, God has assigned me this work to do, and I'm going to do it in spite of who come against me or who's on my side because God has assigned it to me. And with that, we have to have that courage and the boldness to believe that if God give us something to do, then we may not see everything and have everything that we need to accomplish the work, but we got to believe in faith that once you start the work, God's going to bring what you need. And so often in life, people fail to get what God wants them to go because sometimes in the natural, we want to see everything first. It got to all be materialized first, but faith don't work like that. You know, faith don't work like that. I like what Martin Luther King once said, that, you know, uh, you're in a cloudy place and, you, and there's a staircase there, but you don't see but one step. And because you can't see to the top of the staircase, you stand right there at that one step. And when, when you trust God, you believe that, hey, if the one step here, there's another one there. And I tell people, once you start stepping in the direction that God wants you to go in, he'll make things that you can't see standing still become visible once you start moving. And so that's what we got to understand. Opportunity is going to be there. Even in the midst of opportunities, when opposition comes, we must still stand in faith. Now look at this. He says in verse 10, he says, now, when Timothy comes, don't intimidate him. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit. He is doing the Lord's work just as I am. Then he says, don't let anyone treat him with contempt. Send him on his way with your blessings when he returns to me. I expect him to come with the other believers. Now, look at this. Why would Paul have to tell this church, a, a bunch of believers, not to intimidate Timothy? Go ahead, Mike. I think um, one of the reasons, because Timothy was a young man, and um, he was a young pastor, Paul left. And it is, it is possible that when you see somebody young, you might want to treat them any kind of way, and thinking he, have no, he haven't got enough experience. And so I believe that um, Paul was letting him know, hey, I'm, I'm here, and then I'm sending him, and I want you to treat him right. So that's, that's my views on and that's, and that's a good point. I think that's, that's the primary reason. Anybody else before I kind of chime in with that? So he, he got to write the church and tell them don't intimidate him. Now, you, in order to really appreciate that, you got to go back to the beginning of this book. When, when he would tell them, hey, you know, y'all, you know, y'all acting very carnal. Y'all ain't even acting like Christians. Y'all acting carnal. Y'all fussing and fighting, trying to figure out who's favored here, who's favored there. And there was a lot of dissension going on in this church. So he said, now look, I'm sending a young guy there, like Mike is saying, and when he gets there, don't y'all intimidate him. Because y'all may come at him and say, well, you're not Apollos. You're not Peter. You ain't Paul. And you definitely ain't Jesus, so what you doing here? 
He said, look, and, and you know, I tell preachers, man, young, and young ministers or people young in the ministry, man, if God has called you and you know that he's called you, you can't let folks intimidate you. I mean, you got to believe that God would give you what you need to accomplish what he called you to do. And sometimes, I always say, when I'm telling ministers, I say, you know, when it comes to standing up and teaching God's people, you know what God wants you to say. They don't. So, so you, God got everything in your favor. If you don't get up there and tell them you don't know where you're at, most of them won't know you don't know where you're at. So you keep doing what God called you to do and stay with the text or whatever you're preaching from and let the Holy Spirit help you get through that thing. But a lot of times we open our mouths up and start making excuses which make people think, hey, you ain't got the right to be up there. Now, if, you, if God done placed you up there, you shouldn't make an excuse for what God is calling you to do. Amen. Brother Fred, go ahead. You know, I, I wasn't brought up in the Baptist church, but when I did start going to a Baptist church, I noticed that you, you had deacons that ran the church. I mean, it was like, you know, they, they would override the pastor. So, you know, if you got somebody young coming in, with those type deacons in the church, then they're not going to give him much voice. You know, they already got their rules in place, and you have to conform to their rules, or they're going to chase you off. <laughs> yeah, man. I don't see that happen a lot. I mean, I don't, I don't see that happen a lot. And, and, and I think what happens is, is that's when, you know, when in churches where people don't understand, you know, how God has ordered the church. And, you know, if he set pastors in place to be the overseers uh, for a particular flock. And I think what happens is, though, when you go to a ministry where you have been called, people see you as just another employee. And so, therefore, I've heard deacons say this, just like Fred said, hey, you know, we call you, we can fire you. So they forget that. They don't, they don't look like they think that, hey, God brought you here. And because God brought you here through whatever process we use to get you here, we believe you're the man that God wants us to have at this time. And if that's the case, then you got to let him be the man that God called him to be. But what happens is, in those systems, they want to shape, especially a young pastor, they want to shape them into what they want him to be. And you're right. If you got a deacon that's been there for 30 years and he's he been running everything, you know, I never remember, I never forget, you know, when I was uh, going to a lot of seminars, they used to always tell us, man, at the name they would call the chief deacon and just call him Clyde. You know, wherever you go, you got to know who Clyde is. When you get there, the first thing you got to do is find out who is Clyde. Because behind the scenes, Clyde make things happen. And you and Clyde need to get on the same sheet of music before you get go. Don't go in there thinking that, hey, I'm the new guy in town. I'm the sheriff. I'm going to run things. No. Clyde runs things there. You need to go and find out how Clyde sees things playing out. And then you let, let Clyde know how I'm the spiritual covering. I'm going to teach and preach this word. But Clyde, what can I do in a way that me and you can get along? Because I don't need to come forth with something. And every time I bring an idea for Clyde, you... You called everybody and voted down. And that's what happens, you know, in, in churches. A lot of churches work on a parliamentary type system where anything they need to get done, you got to get somebody to vote on it. 
And anytime everything got to be voted on in the church, you're going to always have division. Be because there's going to always be somebody for it and somebody against it, and then politics come into play where people are going to be calling folk before the vote to make sure they got enough people that will vote you down. I mean, and, and that's a lot of, that called discord, that's called division in the church, when it looked like men and women of God ought to be able to sit down and say, hey, what is best for this body at this time? Or let's trust the man or woman of God that God got in place at this time, and then let's believe as long as they're lined up with God's word, let's follow God's word. But again, it don't always work like that, so Fred, you, you're exactly right. But he said, now look, when Timothy come, don't intimidate him because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. Don't let anyone treat him with disrespect or contempt, that's what he's saying. Send him on his way with your blessing when he returns to me. I expect him to come with the others. Now look at this. Now he brings back up, I'm going to ask this question, in verse 12 he says, now about our brother Apollos. How many of y'all remember Apollos? You know, Apollos, Early on, when he said, you know, Paulo was this eloquent speaker, you know, and, and you know, when he met Priscilla and Aquila, you know, he got up and was talking all he knew about the Old Testament, the law and all that. But then after he got through teaching, they pulled him to the side and said, okay, he knew only up to a certain point. He didn't know about the resurrection. He didn't know about the things that Jesus had done. But he was very good. He was articulate, eloquent. And once he learned that, he became even that much more powerful in what he was doing. And because of that, he had a following. You know, he had a following. So Paul had a following, Apollos had a following, Peter had a following, and what happens is, when we start following the man, we lose sight of Jesus. And so he's saying now, about our brother Apollos, and you gotta go back and read the first chapter three, I think, where we talked about that discussion, that debate, when they was talking about, they had broke up into little factions in the church. And, and based upon who they followed, that's who they aligned with, and then now that caused division in the church. And, and anything where there's division and discord, man, God is not a part of that. That's not his MO. He wanted the church to function as a unified body, not to be divided, especially on the personality of the people that stand up here before you. You know? And so he said, now, now about a brother Apollos, he says, I urge him to visit you with the others, but he was not willing to go right now. Okay. Now that let me know one thing right there. That Apollo was not a disciple of Paul. I mean, you know, because in other words, Paul said, I sent Timothy, I sent others, but I tried to urge him to come, but he had the right to tell me, no, I ain't going. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, because I got, a, I got a mission, I got a calling, I'm doing what God called me to do over here, so therefore I'm not going to go there. But he says, he didn't say I made him, but I tried to urge him, but he was not willing to come right now. So he will see you later when he has the opportunity. And I kind of looked at that as that even today in the church, every Christian church don't take orders from just one church. Meaning that striving, we are an independent, non-denominational church. So we're not part of an organization where some bishop can call me and say, hey, this is what you're going to do. Now, now he can urge me 
They say, do you want to take on a mission here? Do you want to do something like that? Or can we work together? But I had a right to say, no, that ain't what God's calling me to do. But if it's something that falls in line with what God is calling us to do here at Striving, then I can say, yeah, we'll come alongside you and do that. So a lot of times that there are things that people have asked us to do here, when I look at those mission statements up there and say, what, does it fit into what we say our vision statement is? Then yeah, let, I think we can work with you on that. But if it's something that don't fit into that, then it's gonna have to be God telling us to say, okay, let's go and do that, okay? But if I was part of a larger organization and then the bishop at the top said, this is what we're gonna do, he wouldn't be urging me to do that. He'd be telling me this is what we're gonna do. And so that's what Paul said. I, I, I tried to urge him, but he reserved the right to say, hey, I ain't going right now. And so, and nothing wrong with that because different ministry has different focuses based upon what God is calling that pastor to do, what's on that pastor's heart. You know, that's why every, every ministry does not operate in foreign countries. Some ministries feel like, hey, our goal is to send missionaries to foreign countries. And because of that, that's what God called them to do. And everybody that's a part of that organization will be training up missionaries to go to foreign countries. And ain't nothing wrong with that. But if another minister say, hey, our vision is to take care of our own country because we got so many issues here, then don't knock me when I say, well, you know, I don't feel like, you know, I want to go to South America in the jungle right now. Because I don't wake up in the morning with God telling me, you know, you need to go back to the motherland and, and minister over there. But if God told me to do that, then we'll start figuring out how can we do that. We'll come up with a strategy. How do we go back to Africa? Amen. But that ain't what God is calling me to do. But I don't knock the pastor who wake up in the morning with burning in his heart for Africa. Or burning his heart for India. Whatever the Lord. So I believe God intentionally don't give us all the same assignment in the same fashion. He put us in lanes that he knows that we can probably work in and operate in that's going to suit who we are. But that don't mean we can't help other people in those lanes. Because right now, we give the support missions in Haiti and different places. When people send us letters saying, hey, can you support our missionaries going here? We, we'll donate money toward that cause. And if a member of our church really had a passion for that and wanted to get on the front line, then I believe we could support them. If someone walk up one day and say, hey, look, Pastor, I just got this burning. I want to go to Africa. Okay, what does it take for you to go over there for two weeks or however long the Lord sending you? Can we help you pull off that? I believe we'll sit down and try to figure it out. But that don't mean striving that's going to be our assignment. Unless you come back and say, hey, man, there's a great work over there and the Lord speaks to our hearts. Okay, let's see what it's all about. Because there's a great work right here in Fort Walton Beach. Amen. So, so I don't knock what God is calling different ministers to do because everybody got to do what they feel like God is calling them to do because they get into something that they don't feel like they got a call on their life to do, then they're not going to do it with their whole heart. So everybody, that's why even you and your serving God, you got to know where your heart is, what God is speaking to your heart because if you operate in an area where your heart is, then you're going to put your effort there, you're going to put your resources there, you're going to do whatever it takes. But if you just operate in an area because someone told you to go over there and that ain't where your heart is, then you're going to get the effort that's required. And so even in this ministry here, I encourage people, man, 
when, when you know that God has placed something on your heart and you see it fits within the, the construct of what we do here striving, hey, let's talk about it. Let's figure out how can we make that happen. Because if God has gave, given you that passion for it, then that means to me that you're going to stay with it. You're going to put your hand in that plow and you're going to stay with it whether or not you get 20 other people to come along with you or not. You know that, hey, this is something God called me to do. And I'm passionate about it. Then, you know, after he talks about that, about, uh, he says, and you talk to when you see it, when they, uh, let me see, he will see you later when he has the opportunity. Then now, starting in verse 13, he started giving them some commands, some things that they need to do, you know, to remain faithful to their call. So when you look at this in 13 and 14, he says, now, the first thing you tell them, hey, talking to the church, and you got to, in order to appreciate these two verses, you will have to go back and remember all that we have read up until this point. All that the things this church was going through, the struggles that they were going through, the internal fighting that they was going through, the false teachers that was coming in and out of those particular churches there, and how all those things impacting the church, and now at the end of the letter, he got to encourage those believers to say, hey, there's things still going on, and even though I'm closing this letter, I want to give you some commands. First he says, now, you got to be on guard. You know, you got to be watching. No different than what Jesus told us when he left. Watch and pray. Stay on guard. Stay alert. Don't go to sleep. You can't, you can't get saved and then go to sleep. Man, so you got to stay on guard. You see yourself here like a century turn, like sitting on post. If you're a guard on post at night, even though it's midnight, you're still supposed to be awake. While everybody else is sleeping, you're supposed to be awake. And so he's saying, look, we have to stay on guard as the church and as believers because the times that we're living in are dangerous times. And if you let your guard down, you could find yourself, you know, being overcome by the enemy. So he says, now, be on guard. Constantly watch out because you got spiritual enemies out there that's trying to figure out how to take down the kingdom of God. So don't think that this warfare is over just because we got saved and come to church. Now the warfare is still going on. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. So in order to be prepared for that, we got to stay on guard. Then he tells them, the next thing he says, stand firm in the faith. Now, today, that is critical because there are so many believers who are not standing firm in the faith. I mean, the worst thing that could have happened, especially even to the church, man, is when, the, when members of the church don't understand how to navigate social media and when they don't have a discerning spirit to discern the content that they're bringing in. Because a lot of times, a lot of times, the content on social media can be put out there without filters. It's not like a news reporter write a story and then he has to run it by an editor and somebody got to verify that story to make sure that it's true because the paper don't want to be putting out bad information but on social media, Bolden can sit down in his basement and just start typing and putting stuff out there. 
and it don't have to be nothing but my wildest ideas. And, 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 and look here, just playing the percentages, somebody gonna believe that. I'm not looking for everybody to believe me, but I know that there's enough gullible people out there who's gonna read it and say, wow, this was online. That must be true. Go ahead, Brother Mike. That is why, Pastor, that the teaching that you're doing, it is very important that people can get sung doctrine. That when you teach, they can understand and they can stand on that teaching. So when they hear things over the internet and elsewhere, they know what the truth is. So that's why you're not only teaching, but everybody's <coughs> free to give their comments, their suggestion, or whatever the question is. Amen. Whether you're teaching facts. Amen. Any other comments? Yes. So um, it just goes back in the Bible, too, like how he was saying. He was like, we need to stand on his word. So if we in his word, then when we see things on social media, you will know what's true if you're studying and being in his word. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, you know, especially if you are reading somebody's content and you can communicate with them, ask them for a scripture to support what they say. Because without scripture support, anything can sound like truth. And so therefore, we need to stand firm in the truth and the faith. And the reason I, I hit this real hard, because I see this every day, articles that I read from Christian publications and all these different uh, entities out there that do fact check some stuff. There are a lot of Christians, and I keep using this term, that this thing called deconstructing their faith. In other words, people are out there taking this Bible, looking through it line by line, and trying to go through there to justify reasons why you no longer have to walk by faith. And so therefore, when people don't know that, and some of their arguments are very convincing. I mean, if, if you don't know the truth, some of the things they say, you go, yeah, why would God say that? I mean, it, you, it will make you start down. Why would God do that? Why would a loving God let that happen? And so what we have to do is say, hey, look, no matter what they come with, we can't turn our back on the faith that saved us. And so therefore, if we're going to argue points about the Bible based upon different interpretations of a person's understanding, the key thing as Christians, I keep going back to the foundation of truth. Jesus, Son of God, his death, burial, resurrection, and he was raised from the dead. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, if we want to argue Old Testament versus New Testament, and I, a good argument I hear people say, well, you know, uh, God uh, must allow certain things to go now because in the Old Testament, when a child acted against their parents, you know, and disrespected them in a certain way, you could take them out to the marketplace, to the gate, and they could stone them. And so someone said, well, if we ain't stoning no more, then maybe it's okay for this to get by God now. Because we no longer stone children. We no longer stone people who come against their parents. So then maybe God didn't really mean that marriage ought to be between a man and a woman. If he let that go and we ain't stoning no more, 
then obviously all that stuff that you use in the Old Testament that talk about marriage and bring it to the New Testament, then maybe that's going to change too. So therefore, if he can change one thing, then change something. Then people say, yeah, you know, yeah. That makes sense. And I ain't got no problem with what you want to believe, but the Bible is clear to me on certain issues. And those issues that the Bible is clear on, you know, I, I respect the laws that we put in place in America because we're law-abiding citizens. But when they conflict with God's law and someone asks me my opinion on it, I got to agree with what God said. I got to agree with what God said. And so sometimes that can be tough, especially for young Christians now who are saying, hey man, you know, because they, weren't, they didn't come up like we came up. They come up in the information age and they got so much access to stuff that it used to take us months to get up to hear about. These kids are hearing about it soon as it happened. You know, we had to wait till the magazine come out to do crazy stuff. And the magazine didn't come out but once a month. Now, the kids can just hit one keystroke and can be in any place on the internet that can take them to some dark places, just like that. And so when we see those things as believers, we got to be encouraged, like he's saying here, you got to stand firm in your faith. Because if you're, not, if you're not firm in your faith, then it will be easy to start wavering and going back and forth. And when we become like that, you know, we become double-minded. And the Bible tells us that a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. So yeah, we may make mistakes, we may error, that's what grace is for, but at the same time, at the end of the day, I know who God is and I know who Jesus is. And I ain't gonna waver on that. And so, so it's important that we teach our children, we teach believers, stand firm in the faith. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't let somebody talk you out of Jesus and make you think that Jesus is nothing more than another prophet. Just like Muhammad or anybody else. He's greater than a prophet. And, and, and what, what caused some problems today for us is that most of the time when you're just talking generic religion, you can have that conversation with anybody. Because most people believe in some type of higher being. A, a, a force out there, a higher being. Believe that. They can believe that. Some people have this pyramid concept that there is a higher being that sits at the top of the pyramid, at the top of the mountain. But there are all these different trails that get up to the top of that same mountain, but they're going to the same higher being. So it don't make no difference if you're on this religious path, that religious path, all that, we're all going to the same higher being. The disconnect comes is when you put Jesus on the path and say that, hey, in order to get to the top of the pyramid, you got to go through him. Well, no, 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 you got to do that. Because he is no different than my guy. I got a guy like him. And so when we don't understand that, then now somebody can talk us out of our faith because those arguments do sound good. They make sense to the natural man. In the natural, that would look good. Yeah, one God sitting up there and all these little different trails leading to the same God. So don't make no difference which trail you're on. They're going to all lead to God. 
And that may, don't get me wrong, that may be true. I, I can't, I won't argue, that's why I don't argue with people like that, but I stand on the fact that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. Now, if someone else believes that's another passage, another way, that's fine. But they ain't going to talk me out of that way. Fred, go ahead. You know, the Bible lets us know, uh, you know, in, before the last days, the deception is going to be so strong, even the very elect, as God has told the days will be deceived. Amen. So if you're not rooted and grounded, you're going to be easily deceived when man throw that stuff out there. Amen. Amen. And so he tell them, hey, stand firm in what you believe. Know what you believe. Then he says, be courageous. So once you know what you believe, then you've got to be able to stand up against the opposition. You've got to be courageous. Because here he was talking about they had to stand against the false teachers and, and deal with the necessary, you know, the stuff that was going on in that congregation. Because if you go back and read the whole chapter, uh, the whole book, you know, there was a lot of things that they was doing internally where they had to stand, someone had to stand up and, and be strong and be courageous when, when, when opposition was coming in, in, even into their own body. He says now, so he says, be courageous. Then he says, be strong. So man, he used a lot of command words there. Be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. He didn't say think about it and meditate on it. The word be means you just be it. Just be it. Do it. I mean, and, and so when he's telling us those things, those are things that we got to say, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can be strong. Because I got something on the inside of me that can help me be strong. I can be courageous by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he said now, and then he tells them to the church, verse 14, and do everything with, with love. Now, those of you who have been with us a while, that ought to take you back to chapter 13. Because he had to write a whole chapter about love. Because they had all these things, and he said, you can have all these gifts, you can speak in this, you can do that, but if you don't have love, it amounts to nothing. It's just knowing. And so what he said is that no matter what we do as Christians, because God is love, we have to always do everything with love. And, and sometimes that is easier said than done, but love got to be the driving force behind the things that we do. And because when we do things in love, then now we're doing it in a way that God would do it. It was love that caused God to send Jesus to die for us. God is, that's his very essence. And so therefore, it is his highest attribute. And so, and when you even go back and look at the commandments, when Jesus left the commandments, the first one dealt with love. Love. And he breaks love down in loving God, loving your neighbor, and loving yourself. And so, so, so we can't go wrong when we do everything that we can to try to practice and demonstrate love. Any questions, any comments, any comments on that before I move on? Okay, now he started talking about another thing that I, if you study a lot of the trends uh, in some of the books that we've read, he, he now talks about 
uh, Stephanus and his household. He says, now look, he says, you know that Stephanus and his household were the first of the harvest of the believers in Greece. Now you have to kind of go back to chapter one where he mentioned that he had baptized this household. And one of the things that we normally see uh, in the New Testament is that when someone gets saved, the whole household come on board. And that's something that I don't know that we believe that today. I don't know that we believe that when you get saved as a parent, your children supposed to get saved too. Or is it optional? I mean, that's what he said, look, everywhere, when the jailer got saved, the jailer whole household, when Lydia got saved, selling the purple, you remember her? Went home, her whole household. When Paul was preaching at Cornelius' house, when he got saved, whole household. When Jesus saved Zacchaeus, took, went to his house, whole household. And now we got church folk coming to church every Sunday and their kids ain't saved. Now you can't make them be saved, but boy, you sure got to preach the message of salvation to them. I mean, you can't wait on Sunday school and, and children's church to do what you're supposed to be doing at home. And so I put this on, especially households that got men in it and men that go to, go to church and say they're, you know, the priests of their household. As the priests of the household, the man ought to be responsible for his children getting trained up. And so I think because of that, we don't see this as a household thing. We wait till we think, okay, our kids is old enough and then they decide that they want to go to church. No, that's wrong. When they're young, you make them go to church. They ain't going to want to go. They ain't going to just wake up in the morning and say, oh, I want to get up and go to church. No, they, you know, they just barely want to go to school. <laughs> so, so you know they ain't going to want to go to church. I mean, they ain't going to go. Most kids don't just wake up and like, no, you have to get, get them conditioned. To get used to getting up in the morning, going to school, stay on time, and after a while they get conditioned. It's the same way with church. You got to get them conditioned. You got to get them in the habit. And they say it takes 21 times to make a habit. So you need to bring them to church 21 times and then believe that they too, part of your household, will be saved. Because look at, and, and we see this pattern throughout the Bible, and I think because of that, that's why it's such a breakdown in the family, I think, in, in, in America today, especially in our community. And I'm talking about in the African-American community because I think that we don't see it necessary to encourage, strongly encourage our children to follow us in the faith. We allow them to make their own minds and we want to deliberate with them. We want to sit down and reason. You don't reason with a five-year-old. You just don't. You, you guide and you lead and you direct, direct the five-year-old. Because you, you know more than the five-year-old know. No. But now I hear parents reasoning with a five-year-old and that five-year-old winning an argument. I mean, how, how can that be, man? Something wrong with that. And so, so when we look at this and he tells us about our household, you know, and, and granted, most kids will depart from it when they get off and get away from home. Some of them going to say, I just had to get my freedom and broke away from it. But you got to trust the Bible. The Bible says when they get old, they'll come back. 
But they ain't going to have nothing to come back to if you don't put nothing in them. And it's up to us to put something in our children and then believe that the Holy Spirit will keep them on track and bring them back after they go through their dumb days. Because all kids go through their dumb days. Maybe not absolutely all, but a good percentage, about 90%. You know, there's something happened to them when they get 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. They just, I just call them dumb days. You want to know where did, where did this come from? But the reason may be, Fred, we got a whole lot of different things educating them now that we didn't have educating them. We were dumb and we didn't even have what they have. We got dumb just with the little bit of stuff that we ran across. Now these kids get dumb because they got a multitude of dumbness out there. Dumbness everywhere. And so I, I, I often tell parents, man, you can't, and I know, well, they got their privacy. No, that's your phone. You pay the bill. You ought to be able to get in the phone. They shouldn't have no password on there that you can't open and take a look at their phone. If they're in your house, you ought to be able to get on their computer and go to where they go. You shouldn't be surprised when you go in there on the computer and find out that little Johnny done been in some places you didn't think he would go. And you need to stay up on the latest technology so you know how to put the blocks on there so they can't get okay. Because they get smart now. They'll get around your little blocks. So you got to stay on top of that. And, and the reason I say that is because we just had the back to school thing here. The sheriff department teach a whole class on that. How to teach parents how to monitor their children when they get out there on the internet and cyber. Because if you don't know how, your kids could go to places that you didn't think they would go and be influenced. And that's how predators get online. They, 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 they talk to our kids and next thing you know, your child trying to meet somebody in a parking lot. So we, we, we got to be mindful that we have a responsibility for our household. Especially if you are a Christian, you got a responsibility, man, for your household. So he said, now look, you know that Stephanus and his household were the first of the harvest of the believers in Greece. And they are sending their, and they are spending their lives in the service of God's people. You get the household saved, then eventually I believe the family will serve. You, get, you, you, you believe that, hey, we can serve God as a family. Shouldn't be ones and twos, we can do this, but it gotta start young. And then he says, I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to submit to them and others like them who serve with such devotion. So he said, hey, look, there's nothing wrong with finding people who are trying to do right by God. For Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ and imitate other faithful people. So when we find people who are trying to do right, there's nothing wrong with us finding people who serve the Lord with devotion commitment, and, uh, and, 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 and with integrity. Those are the type of people that we've had to try to find. Now, granted, our, our, our example that we look up to is Jesus, not man. Because anybody can make an error, make a mistake, but still, sometimes we can handle a human example quicker than we can handle a spiritual example. Because None of us have seen Jesus. We read about him. 
But therefore, we see others who are trying to live like him, and then now we can have a pattern, an example. And no one who's trying to live like him is perfect, so don't, don't ever look at that that way. He says, now, and when you hear the word serve with devotion, what, what does that mean to you? What do you think he means when you say people, what do you think a person look like, or what does that look like? when someone served with devotion. Anybody? Your answer is your answer. However you interpret that, Jesus used to tell his disciples, hey, this is what the words say. Now, how do you interpret it? How do you understand that? Brother Mike? Well, um, it may mean another word to me, but it, it's, it's almost like with reverence, so to speak. And um, it's, it's reverence, so to speak, in, um, in, in the word of God. Like you, you put you put all yourself in him, you give him everything, you, your whole body, your whole body and soul in him. And um, you focus on him and your attention and everything is in him. That that uh, your your full your full body is that's all. Okay, okay. Anybody else? Yes, and passionate. You are serving with passion, your whole heart. Okay. Devotion, yeah, passionate about it, committed to him. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? Again, your answer, this is, this is not something I went and said, okay, it's exactly this. Anybody else got a comment? Okay, so he says now, you find others like them who serve with such devotion, being devoted to God. You know, you could almost look at it just like, say for instance, someone who say, man, I, uh, I'm accustomed to having devotion in the morning. If you are, that means that you are committed to that that when I get up, I am devoted to having some time with God before I get into my day. That takes commitment. It's easy to say those things, but a lot of times we wake up and the first day, oh, I gotta hurry up, I gotta get out here, I gotta do that. And now we don't even acknowledge God because we get so caught up in our business. But devotion will say, okay, when I wake up, man, I wanna think about him and at least just say thank you, nothing else. Just thank you for touching me again to, to wake up this morning. So, so, so God expects some level of devotion from us as we serve him. Then he says, in verse 17, 18, he says, Now, I am very glad that Stephanus, Fontanus, and uh, Acadius have come here. I guess they came there to be with Paul. He said, Now, look, they have been providing the help you weren't able to give me. And so, again, Paul saw these guys as encouragement. He says, Now, look, in verse 18. They have been a wonderful encouragement to me as they have been to you. You must show your appreciation to all who serve well. So that let me know, man, all of us need encouragement. Ministry is not a one man or one woman show. Ministry is a team effort and everybody need encouragement. Everybody need to be told that, that hey, Keep fighting for the Lord. Keep trying to live right for the Lord. We ought to always be able to have an encouraging word when we meet, meet people and share that with them because that may be something that keeps that person on the right track for that day. All people need it. And you know, every now and then, people, you know, I don't, I don't look for people to encourage me often, but every now and then, man, people would, that I don't even expect will be sending me texts. Say, oh, okay, Pastor, I hope you have a wonderful day, a great day. And I'm saying, wait a minute, okay, God. Somebody thought enough just to send me a little text and say, be encouraged, be strong. And, 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 and I try to answer everybody who sent me those things, 
but that's not something I expect. But when that Lord placed that on their heart and they do that, I said, man, somebody is taking note of what's going on. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that God expects us to be an encouragement to one another, especially when you know that there are people who are going through things in life and they need that word of encouragement. And now some people are gifted. They have that gift. They just got the natural ability to be that encourager and that exhorter. Everybody on. But everybody can share a word of encouragement with someone. And, and I think that, that God will be pleased if we encourage one another as we endure in this fight that we're in. He says, you must show your appreciation to all who serve so well. Again, by encouraging them. Then his final greeting, then we're going to get out of here. He said, look, this is another one of those tests, see how much we remember from all the previous lessons. The churches here in the province of Asia send greetings in the Lord, as do Aquila and Priscilla. Well, now, who are, those? who are they? Those are the tent makers, husband and wife team, who, who Paul spent time with, okay, when he, was, when he was there. So apparently, these people, you know, are still serving the Lord, and they were, Paul has said, hey, they send their greeting as do Aquila and Priscilla and all the others who gather in their homes for church meetings. So again, before that was churches, churches met in people in caves, people homes, and things like that. And that's why now some churches have gone back to small group meetings in people's homes. You know, they're not calling them churches, but you know, uh, some of the bigger churches, they would say, okay, rather than having a centralized uh, Bible study, you will break up and say, okay, everybody in this area, y'all go to Bible study, in this zip code, you go to Bible study, in this zip code, you go to Bible study, in this zip code, and they kind of get one central lesson from the church, and then now that free people up to be able to fellowship and do things like that in smaller groups. But some people have started churches right out of their homes. You know, and, and from those home ministries, you know, you can see some ministries have come in to be mega churches. But it all started right there. In, in the first churches, they met constantly in caves and in people's homes before they started building, you know, big buildings. That came much later. Okay? Then he says, all the brothers and sisters send greetings to you. Greet each other with Christian love. Then he kind of closed out his letter by saying this. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting. Paul. In other words, it is, it is known that Paul, did, even though he is credited with being the author of all these letters, he did not physically write all the letters. A lot of the letters he transcri had transcribed. In other words, someone dictated what he was telling them to write. So he didn't physically write all of them, but all of them was his words. And so from time to time, he will personally sign a letter as the closing out to say, hey, I'm authenticating what you're about to read. It came from me. You know, and that's all he was trying to do here. So my greeting, and he says, Paul. Then he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, man, I don't see, he could have just stopped right there when he said Paul and, and didn't forget about this. But he said, now look, if anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. Wow. 
All he's saying is that, man, when people don't love the Lord, they are placed under God's wrath. You know, in other words, no difference than saying, hey, if you don't love the Lord, you're in his team, you're still his enemy. But Jesus came so that we wouldn't have to be an enemy of God. Now we are friends of God, all because of what Jesus did. But those people who are, don't believe are God's enemies, and therefore they stand in the face of his wrath. But even in, in his wrath, God is still extending grace to anybody who don't believe. So, 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 so even though he, Paul says this, that person is cursed, but he says, our Lord, come and get Back then, the first century, these early churches had the expectation that Jesus was going to come back a lot sooner. They, they were thinking that, hey, he's coming back sooner. So they lived with the expectation that he was going to come in their lifetime. And, and so for us, I don't think today any of us live like Jesus is going to come back before we die. But can you imagine if we really locked in and thought that Jesus was going to show up before we checked out, that would probably change the way you live. If, you, if we really thought. But because we don't know and he didn't tell us exactly, then now we don't always live like he's coming back. Then he says, may the grace, the favor of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. So again, grace is a common way that Paul either began his letters and then ended his letters by exhorting that God's grace be on his hearers, God's favor, God's mercy, you know, and, and God's love be extended to his hearers. Are there any questions? Any questions before we get out? Okay. We got this, this chapter was pretty straightforward because it was pretty much, uh, you know, the end of that letter. And so the next time we'll go to the second letter. And just a recap, this first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul was pretty in their face on a lot of, a lot of places. If you remember when we started this, this, this study, the second letter, he's going to be a whole lot different. His attitude is going to be different because it looked like some of the things that he admonished them to do in the first letter, they must have started doing those things. So the tone and tenor of the second letter is not as in their face and confrontational in places like the first letter. Because the first letter, you know, they had a lot of things going on in the church when he wrote this first letter. Brother Fred? I, I think that's, that's where Paul focused a lot on love in this, cha in this chapter. You know, because that's what the world needs. And I think if families start to love each other, that'll be the first start of spreading love within the world. Amen. You know, a lot of times, love got to start at home and spread out into the world. But a lot of times, families don't love each other. So if families don't love each other, of course the world is not going to love each other. Amen. Good point. Good point. Any other comments before we close? Any other comments? Okay. Well, before we get out of here, I got a couple of announcements for you. Uh, so just uh, if they apply to you,